so there's a point at which God says, enough, it's time for judgment. You see that in the flood. You see that in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see that in uh, the Israelite assault on the promised land. It's a foreshadowing of the last day when God will say enough. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. This is the audio series for people who love the Bible, people who are always itching to understand the Bible a little bit deeper, because we don't go to the Bible just for a little bit of inspiration for the day, but instead we recognize that this is God speaking to us, and we want to deeply understand, we want to own particular books of the Bible so that we not only get its message, but so that we are equipped to give that back out to other people. And so that as we teach, we might handle the word of God and teach it rightly and effectively and creatively. I'm sitting down at Westminster Theological Seminary today. It's a beautiful fall day. You'll have to forgive me for my uh, voice affected by allergies, but I am so thrilled to be sitting here with Dr. Ian Duguid here at Westminster Seminary. Uh, you came to Westminster, I guess, just a year ago. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So welcome to help me teach the Bible. Thank you for being willing to share your wisdom with us. Thank you. It's a great privilege to be with you today. I have benefited so much from your teaching. I found a couple sites where there's lots of your preaching online and have listened a lot, especially a lot of the uh, prophets. You've done a lot of teaching on prophets, which is I have found really helpful. Your commentary on Ruth and Esther in a PNR's commentary line, I don't know how anybody could teach those books and, and not use that commentary especially for your uh, unique ability to help us see Christ mm. through all of the scriptures. Christ is the center of the whole scriptures. So anybody listening can tell immediately by your accent that you're not from Philadelphia or even the States originally. Would you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Uh, I was born in exile in England. I'm from a Scottish family. Uh, grew up in exile and then went uh, back home to university in Edinburgh. Uh, worked in the oil industry in Glasgow and Aberdeen for a couple of years after that, and then used my engineering uh, on the mission field in Liberia, West Africa for two years, which is where I met my wife. Uh, and then I, I studied here at Westminster, did my MDiv here, did a PhD at Cambridge, and uh, was church planting in Oxford, England for a while after that. Uh, and since then, I've been in the States for 20 years now, teaching uh, at a variety of different institutions uh, Westminster in California for 10 years, Grove City College for nine years with undergraduates, and now back at the seminary level here at Westminster in Philadelphia. You know, something I've been trying to figure out since I maybe eight or 10 years ago began to try to understand more deeply on how to see Christ through all the scriptures. As I've searched out mentors to help me understand how to do that rightly, why is it that most of them come from Scotland, the UK, Australia. Do you have an answer for that? I've asked lots of people that question. Hmm. We'll see if you have an answer to it that I haven't found yet. Yes, I, I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, 
uh, there are a number of different uh, links between different people. Uh, not everybody has arrived at it from the same, the same location. Um, Did you grow up being taught the scriptures that way? Uh, I don't think so. I think I grew up in a, in a, in a setting that, that wasn't opposed to it. But it wasn't really until I came to Westminster, I think, okay. that I really so it really happened that. here. Yes, very much. Under whose influence here? Oh, I can still remember vividly sitting in the basements of the library, listening to an old cassette tape uh, of Ed Clowney uh, talking about Psalm ninety, uh, and uh, I, I listened. I mean, his introduction hooked me. Uh, it was originally addressed at Urbana uh, to college students. Uh, just a fabulous sermon, and I realized this is. This is how I want to understand the Bible, and this is the way I want to communicate it to people. Was he teaching personally here when you came? No, I actually I didn't meet him until I started teaching in California. He was teaching there uh, uh, in retirement. He was one, of those, was one of those guys who never really retired and uh, was a rich blessing to get to know him personally at that point, having been so influenced by him already. Now, you've written a number of commentaries, and I understand you're working on a project right now on the book that we're going to talk about in this episode, the book of Judges. So what are you doing and why? Right. Uh, this is in a series that uh, Broadman and Holman is publishing uh, called Biblical Theology for Christian Pro Proclamation. So it's designed to help preachers uh, get the big picture of the book in order to be able to preach it uh, better. Well, that's what we exactly <laughs> want you to do for us today as Thank teachers. You which is to help us get the big picture of this, this book. When I think about the book of Judges, it's a really a very dark book in many ways. It would is. you call it that? Uh, I, I would, although I, I don't think actually that's most people's first thought. Okay. Uh, most people's first thought about any Old Testament uh, book uh, is based on their Sunday school experience, uh, what I call the, the veggie tale version of the Old Testament uh, and uh, so if, if it, it, it's only those little vignettes that show up in our children's Bible story Bibles that most people know, and they don't connect them at all. Uh, and so they know something about Gideon putting out the fleece uh, and this thing with the trumpets and the torches. But have no idea where that falls in Israel's history or why right. it matters. Right, or, or how that's connected to Samson. You know, may not even know that Samson's in the same book. Uh, and, and what do we know about Samson except, well, he was really strong. He was kind of a Christian martial arts person, had, you know. We, and so we, we have these uh, uh, vignette stories, but we don't connect them. And we don't see how they uh, even really uh, fit in the same book uh, of Judges, let alone how they fit within the flow of Scripture. Well, we hope you're going to help us with that. <laughs> <laughs> so make a case for us. Um, you know, I am – I've got a – a class I'm responsible for, and I'm trying to figure out what to teach next fall, next spring. Um, I'm very aware that perhaps those who come to my class are pretty interested in oftentimes felt need kind of things. They want something that's going to help them be really practical for today. So why would I want to think about teaching the book of Judges? Uh, I'd start between distinguishing between the felt needs of the people who are coming and their real needs uh, a lot of people are going to come to the Bible study wanting something upbeat, something to help them feel happy. Uh, and, uh, uh, and often that's filtered through this prism that the Christian life ought to be the happy, victorious life. And so we focus on those parts of the Bible that look happy and victorious. And so we spend time studying Joshua uh, and, and the conquest. And we, and we spend time studying David. And we, and we love Nehemiah because he gets stuff done. Um, 
But where your people are living is not like that a lot of the time. Your people, many of them are living in a very dark place. Uh, they have histories, in some cases, of abuse, uh, histories of brokenness within their marriages, within their families. They have children who are not walking with the Lord. Uh, they're experiencing the, the fallen brokenness of this world. Um, you know, I've, I've often thought that, that in seminary, often we can give seminary students this really artificial picture of the church uh, as this glorious, wonderful place like uh, Acts 2, uh, where everybody loves each other and they all love the word and they love praying. And, uh, and, and then we send people out and they discover that they've landed in the book of Judges. Uh, it always amuses me when people say, well, we want to be a New Testament church. Uh, I find myself thinking, well, well, which New Testament church do you want to be? Corinth? with all the sexual and uh, broken issues there? Uh, you know, do, do you want to be Laodicea with all the lukewarm people? Uh, the real world in which we live is not always a, a happy, uh, easy place. Uh, and the book of Judges exposes us to the reality of that uh, and challenges us to see what God is up to in the midst of a situation of brokenness and difficulty, uh, a situation that without the Lord would cause us to despair. How are you going to set the scene to help people understand this right. book? Yeah, so the, the opening chapter is, is really what sets the scene for us. And we, uh, the opening verse is after the death of Joshua. So immediately that raised the question, well, who's Joshua? You kind of land there and spend some time, I suppose. Right, right. And so uh, you need to help people know who Joshua is, uh, which, of course, then takes you back into the conquest. Uh, and then, of course, well, how did the book of Joshua begin? Well, after the death of Moses. Uh, and uh, so there, you know, God's people had a leader uh, who was leading them out of exile. Uh, but that was not the beginning of the Lord's work with his people. And so that takes you back to Abraham and God's promises to give Abraham a people in the land. Uh, and, uh, and that's why God delivered his people out of Egypt. That's why Joshua was given this conquest of the land. Uh, and that's what sets you up then for this, uh, this, this history. And then, of course, at the other end... Uh, this is introducing us to the question of kingship. Uh, the key theme that shows up towards the end of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, so each man did as was right in his own eyes. Uh, so there's a question of the extent to which kingship is the answer to Israel's problems, uh, or is it simply one more challenge that they have to deal with? Uh, and uh, God is going to give them a whole succession of kings, good kings, bad kings, indifferent kings, uh, showing that ultimately kingship is not going to solve the problem either. What they need is a king who's not like any of the kings they've ever had. Uh, and so the issue of leadership is very prominent throughout uh, all these books, really from Deuteronomy through uh, to the end of Second Kings. Uh, all of that pointing us forward to, to the, the true king that we really need, who's Jesus. So I suppose people have to understand what, what life was like uh, for the people of Israel at this point. I mean, they were a family when they went in to mm. captivity in Egypt. Mm. They came out as this nation, this group of tribes, and they came in with Joshua, and Joshua has assigned territory to the various clans and tribes. But Judges is kind of that one unique moment then in biblical history um, where there isn't uh, a cohesion. They're kind of a mm. loose group of tribes at this point, right? How would you describe it? Yes. So, well, what, what you what you have in some respects in the Book of Judges, you, you have you have the flip side of the Book of Joshua. In the Book of Joshua, you have the, the positive presentation of the conquest. 
Uh, and, and, and there are hints of, of issues and challenges there. They don't completely right. eradicate the Canaanites. Right. Uh, but, but overall, it's a very positive picture. And, and the reason for that is it wants to make it clear that, that God has fulfilled his promises, that God has been faithful to his people and has given them the land. Um, and yet, uh, there's more to the conquest than that. And so the book of Judges is going to give us the, the flip side of that, which shows us some of the difficulties and challenges that Israel faced because of their disobedience and because of their unfaithfulness and what God is up to during those times. Because, uh, because the book of Judges tells us why God leaves the tribes there. Uh, God is training them in war. Uh, God is disciplining his people. God is at work through the difficulties. You know, we, we very happily confess God's sovereignty when he, things work well for us. You know, when we apply for a job, go for the interview, we pray, and God gives us the job. Uh, when we, we're concerned about cancer, we go see the doctor, and it turns out people are dying. Uh, but the book of Judges wants us to confess God's sovereignty in the dark times. Uh, and the dark times, not just of our circumstances, but even the dark times of our sin. What is God up to uh, when, we, when he turns us over to ourselves? Uh, he's humbling us. He's showing us that left to ourselves, this really is who we are. So the book of Joshua shows what God is able to do uh, and uh, perfectly capable of doing uh, positively. But the book of Judges also shows us that God is sovereign and God is at work even when things are not going so well. Uh, God is, is still fulfilling his purposes to demonstrate who he is, uh, a God of, of, of grace and compassion and mercy uh, as he describes himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Uh, which, of course, if he always kept us away from our sin, we would never see. We'd never experience that. Help us understand the organization of the book that might help us then to understand how we're going to approach it. Because if we've been reading Joshua, we're reading the story of their slow progression, taking conquests, and we get those lists right. there. But, you know, for us as modern Western thinkers, we kind of like a, um, a chronological story, but that's not quite what we have in Judges, right. is it? Right, right. So, so we have an introduction in uh, chapter 1 uh, through to uh, verse uh, 6 of chapter 3, uh, which kind of lays out the story. Uh, then we have these uh, uh, cycles of the Judges, essentially six cycles uh, of, of the judges that runs through to the end of uh, chapter uh, 16. Uh, and then we have a double epilogue in verses, uh, in chapter 17 through 21. Uh, which I heard were, it called an appendix one place too. Yeah, it's the kind of appendix you want to take out because yes. it's so, so toxic. Uh, but uh, yes, it, it really is the, the kind of the ending of the story. Um, and so that brackets the, the these six cycles of the judges that leaves you... Um, uh, I mean, this pattern of six of something in the scriptures leaves you ready for the seventh, ready for rest, and and yet it doesn't come, and you get. I never thought of that. Ending. That six, and then yeah. rest for the seventh. Yeah, yeah, we're still looking for rest. Joshua has not given the people rest, and there's no rest here. Looking for a better savior, right, uh, Judge, and and that leads us to you know when, when we stand up to teach, m most people we're teaching and have an image in our mind as to what a judge is. They probably think mostly courtroom. How, right. how do we explain helpfully what a judge is? Right. Yeah, and, and in most of, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word shofet, which we translate judge, means the same thing that we think of. Uh, but it, it, uniquely, really, in this book, 
uh, we have these uh, these judges who are really charismatic deliverers. Uh, in some cases, they do provide some kind of legal services uh, once they've established their reign in ways that kings would also do uh, to some extent. Um, but uh, it, it's almost a unique term in judges for these, uh, these deliverers that the Lord raises up uh, and uses for his own purposes. So if you were going to teach this book, I, I know you're serving at a local right. church here. And right. So let's say for the fall or the spring, you were going to do a study of judges. So right. you had, what, 8, 10, 12 sessions. How would you divide up the book, planning out how you were going to present that over those number of weeks? Right. Yeah, so I'd probably start out with an introductory session that's going to cover uh, really the, the introduction of the book, uh, which is – which is daunting in terms of how big a, a chunk it is. Well, let me ask you about that, too, because I, I know when I was studying Judges, it's, it's a bit challenging because in chapters 1 and 2, it's almost like you have two introductions. Right, yes. Would you just explain like, that? Well, just like you have a double conclusion, you ha- have okay. sort of a double introduction. What's the um, difference? Why are Both of which are introduced by the, the, yeah, a reference to the death of Joshua. Right. Um, and so the first chapter through really to chapter 2, verse 6 uh, deals with uh, Israel's attempts to take the land. Um, you know, after the death of, of Moses, we have Joshua. After the death of Joshua, we don't have any human leader at that point. And yet, initially, things seem to be going well. Uh, Judah asks the Lord, you know, uh, Israel asks the Lord, who should go up first? It's Judah. Uh, Judah asks the Lord, should we go up with Benjamin? The Lord said, yes. It, everything initially seems to be going well, but then as you progress from south to north, which is the, the, the geographical pattern of that first chapter, things gradually fall apart. Uh, and, uh, and then you find the Israelites living among the Canaanites, uh, or the Canaanites living among the Israelites. And then by the end of the chapter, the Israelites are living among the Canaanites. Uh, and we see that this intended conquest of the land has turned into cohabitation. Uh, and, and we see increasingly a lack of faith on the part of the Israelites. You know, they say, well, you know, the Israelites could not, you know, the, this tribe could not conquer that part because the people had chariots of iron. Well, we'll discover later on in the book that it doesn't matter what technology the, the enemies of the Lord have, the Lord is sovereign and he's able to, to give victories uh, to those who trust in him. So there's a lack of trust exhibited there. Uh, and even when Israel weeps in chapter 2, there's a question of is that weeping a weeping of repentance or a weeping because they're not getting what they want? Um, but you you do chapters one and two together? Yeah, I probably would. I mean, again, depends on how long I've got. I, yeah. If you you got to get through uh, a lot of judges, a lot of chapters, <laughs> and a lot of judges here, yeah. and so most and most people are not going to have you know twenty six weeks to do this, right. or twenty two weeks or whatever. So uh, you pretty much have to move quickly somewhere, uh, and uh, so I would I would uh, yeah use that to kind of set the picture. Uh, give an overview, uh, and uh, you already have, uh, in, in, in principle, between uh, 2.6 and 3.6, you have laid out uh, the, the, the pattern of behavior of, of the people sinning. Describe that to us. Yeah, so the people sin, uh, they go after the idols of the land, the, the Baals and, and, and the Asherah, uh, and uh, then God hands them over to an enemy, and they serve that enemy for a while, and then they cry out uh, to the Lord's, uh, and the Lord sends a deliverer, and then they have rest. Uh, and that's the classic cycle that we'll see over and over. But as you progress through the book, that cycle begins to break down. 
it's not just a repeated cycle that Israel is going round and round again and again. It kind of devolves, yeah, doesn't it? It, 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 it go, it's going downhill. And you see that, you know, even right, right from the start, uh, the first judge is, is, in many respects, the ideal judge. And then from then on, progressively, we're going downhill from there. So as we're trying to decide how to divvy it up, yeah, these first couple of judges, um, I mean, especially the first one, I mean, it's pretty short. Mm. I mean, do you give a, would you give a week to each of these judges or would you group some of them together? Uh, well, the minor judges, you're going to have to have to group together, mm. I think. Um, and who would you mean by that? Uh, well, in between the major judges, we have these characters, these yeah. might, what called some of them are just like, like a verse or like, two. Yeah. Shamgar. Yeah. Who, who shows up, uh, and, uh, is only, you know, he kills these 600 Egyptians with a, uh, an ox goad, uh, a cattle herding implement. And, that's all we know about him. Um, although, again, you can sort of read between the lines there. Shamgar is not an Israelite name. Uh, it's not a Hebrew name. Uh, and, and, and he's called Ben-Anat. Uh, uh, and Anat is the name of a pagan goddess. Uh, we know there were some warrior groups, uh, mercenary groups, wandering around that would describe themselves as, as, as Ben-Anat. Uh, and so it's quite possible he's not an Israelite at all. And yet the Lord uses him to provide deliverance for his people. Well, that brings up something. I mean, each of these judges has his own unique weakness. Mm. Or they, they all seem a bit unlikely for some reason or another, don't they? Uh, yeah, and that progresses as it goes on. Uh, and, and those weaknesses become more pronounced. And, and, and in a sense, that's what make, makes Othniel, the first judge, so unusual is that he doesn't have a weakness. Yeah, he's he's the lone ranger. You know. So how we are starting at the top. We're, we're going to devolve. Top. Yeah, we've got a pretty good judge. Yeah, I mean, if you remember the old Lone Ranger TV programs, he was the guy in the white hat, and uh, he always stood up tall. He would never tell a lie. He would never mistreat a lady. <laughs> uh, and and but he would always be victorious. And he and it says the, the spirit the of the Lord was upon him. Right. And Do we read that for all of the judges? Do we sense uh, that? Not, not, not all of them are in the same way. I mean, you know, the spirit of the Lord comes on most of them at different points. Um, to accomplish a task. To accomplish a task. Yes, we need to be careful not to overread that and assume that just because the spirit is on them, everything they do, therefore, is good and right and, and holy. Uh, that's not the case. Right. Then we come to Ehud. Is yeah. that how you say it? You may say it Yeah. Yeah, so Ehud, uh, you know, Ehud is more like a CIA assassin, right? I mean, he's sneaky. Uh, he's left-handed. Uh, you know, the old Latin word for left is sinister. Uh, and uh, My left-handed parents. They so. kind of appreciated somebody <laughs> being left-handed in the Bible. Right. I'm not sure they understand that it's not really presented as a positive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, it, of course, that's what enables him to conceal his weapon uh, mm -hmm. from from, uh, from the pat-down of, of uh, uh, Eglon's uh, officers. Um, and, of course, Eglon, uh, the king of Moab, who's the oppressor at this point, uh, is a figure you're intended to laugh at. Uh, I mean, his name, Egel, in Hebrew mean, means cow. So Eglon means little calf, uh, except he's the biggest little calf you've ever seen, uh, a fattened calf, you might say. Uh, and, and, of course, he got fat. On, if you're an Israelite, he got fat on your tax revenue. So um, it's kind of fun to see him get his comeuppance. Uh, when Ehud goes in and tells him he has a word from the Lord, uh, and it's a secret word, and so, of course, he sent, Eglon sends all of his attendants out, uh, and then Ehud makes sure that he gets the point. Uh, oh, as he a little pun this, there. Uh, 
18 mm. inch sword in, uh, and and you know his his uh, his fat just closes over it. I mean, it's just this um, sort of gross but also humorous uh, image, uh, and uh, uh, and then uh, Ehud escapes while uh, the Eglon's attendants are standing outside, not too sure what to do, whether to come in. They think uh, maybe maybe their their master is using the bathroom, and that's. Uh, you know that's why it's taking so long, and uh, so yeah, it's it's a sort of a sneaky victory. Uh, it's not a straightforward, you know, man to man on Main Street, you know, the showdown at at, at the OK Corral. It's uh, it's trickery, and it's still you know God is using that. God delivers His people uh, through Ehud and gives them rest through Ehud, um, but it's just not as straightforward. As the first book, Judge. you know, Judges. It seems to me as one of those books in our day, in which um, many voices, even within our evangelical Christian culture, are suggesting that maybe we've been reading the Bible wrong. Hmm. Many of these voices say we need to take the Bible on its own terms. Right. That we're By we're which not in its own broken terms. Surely, the Book of Judges is one of these books that rises up in those kind of discussions. Uh, called into question. It it probably begins there in the first chapter, even maybe even the second verse, where they're they're going up against the Canaanites. The very question of of uh, annihilation right. is this genocide. So that would be a first question. But then we're here. On, we're on the the judge Ehud, and right. he's an assassin. Right. Um, so. Maybe this is one of the first, and, and we're still at some of the best judges. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Right. So we just talk to us as teachers about how we handle those kind of questions that might come up from those we are teaching who are mm. listening to some of those voices. And maybe they're not wholeheartedly buying it, but they're trying to make sense right. of all of that. Right. There's one sense in which I think we do need to take the Bible on its own terms and to, to, to reframe the way people re- have read the Bible We've tended to be taught to read the Bible looking for heroes, uh, assuming that everything the Bible talks about is commended and, and to be imitated and be copied. And, of course, that then confuses us because we find these people behaving in ways that you think, well, that can't be right. Uh, and the narrator isn't necessarily tipping you off because he assumes you know that that's not right. And you're, you're sufficiently smart to be able to figure out that just because somebody in the Bible did that doesn't mean that you're supposed to do the same thing. Um, However, we also need to recognize that the Bible is the word of God. It is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. That's the way God's people have always read it. Uh, God's people, since earliest days, and if you look at the rabbis, they spent a lot of time trying to harmonize different parts of the Bible, trying to see how different parts fitted together. They understood that there were difficulties, but they also understood that since there's one author, in principle, there has to be a solution to those difficulties. You know, it's not simply a modern idea that we, we, we need to harmonize these difficult texts. Um, Hananiah ben Hezekiah uh, was renowned among the rabbis because uh, we're told that he, sp- he burned 300 barrels of oil in his attic trying to reconcile the laws that Ezekiel wrote down with the laws of Moses. Uh, now, unfortunately, the rabbis would say because of our sins, his labors were not preserved for us. Uh, so we don't know exactly how he figured out how to harmonize these parts of the Bible. But one of the things that shows us is this intensity since ancient times of God's people to say the Bible is one. It has to all fit together. Uh, and if, if we can't figure out how it fits together, the problem is with us and not with the Bible. And we need to work harder and wrestle 
Uh, and yet, yeah, not ignore the challenges and the tensions and the difficulties, but to start from a viewpoint that says, in principle, these things can be fitted together. Now let's work at trying to see how that, how that works. Now, in terms of, uh, of genocide, uh, the idea that, that, that the Israelite conquest of Canaan is problematic. Immoral. Uh, immoral, yes. Uh, to begin with, we can start by noting that that's not the view the Bible has. Uh, in fact, the Bible has the reverse view. The book of Judges shows us very clearly what happens when Israel doesn't do what God has told them to do. It does not go well for Israel when they do not follow through with this command to wipe out the Canaanites. Uh, they end up becoming assimilated to the people, uh, becoming just like the people. And so uh, purely from a pragmatic uh, uh, understanding, we can see uh, part of the reason for God's rationale here. Uh, the piece I think people miss out, though, is the fact that, that holy war is not, it's not a routine practice every time Israel goes to war. It's a unique practice for the conquest of the land. And it's not all people. It's not all peoples everywhere. everywhere. They, don't, you know, they don't do this uh, to the Moabites. They don't do, do this uh, every, uh, in every battle that, that they take place. It's specifically uh, during the conquest of the land. Uh, and it's specifically the result of the fact that God has declared the sins of the Amorites full. You know, back in Genesis, God says to Abraham, I'm not going to give the land to your people right now. Your, your descendants will be in Egypt for 400 years because the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. And so there's a point at which God says, enough, it's time for judgment. You see that in the flood. You see that in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see that in uh, the Israelite assault on the promised land. It's a foreshadowing of the last day when God will say enough. It's time. It's time for judgment. Sin deserves death, which is what Paul says. So if you've got a problem with the idea that sin deserves death, you've got a problem with Paul. The only thing that happens in the case of, of uh, the Israelite conquest of the promised land is that the, the date of judgment is brought forward. And so they're not given uh, a, a whole lifetime, as it were, to, to continue their sin. So, so you say we've got to understand that they were deserving of judgment. Don't we also just need to understand the whole point of what God is doing in terms of giving his land a people? That we almost need to set in story of the context of the whole Bible, begin with Eden, this right. original holy land that is people were supposed to dwell in and be obedient to him. Right. And, um, but now he's called a people to himself. Right. Yes. It, God's purpose to have a land for, for a people who would be holy, who would be separate, who'd be distinct, not mixed in with everything else, uh, which you see in all kinds of, of laws that he gives his people. That's why they're not to wear polyester cotton shirts. Uh, it's not that there's something wrong with polyester and cotton. It, it's the, it, it's that mixing of two distinct uh, uh, fabrics uh, when God wanted to show them that he wants them to be distinct and different. Uh, and same emphasis we find in the New Testament when, when Peter uh, tells Christians we're to be a peculiar people. Now, I know some Christians who are peculiar in ways that are not good, but uh, uh, Paul, what Peter has in mind there is being distinct and different and, and living in a community as such. Uh, as exiles and strangers. Now, you know, from my own story, I know a little bit about being an exile uh, in, a, in a foreign land. And one of the things that exiles uh, are very happy to do is to get together with other, other fellow exiles 
uh, and we always gripe about whatever country we're living in uh, and, uh, and, and talk about how wonderful things are at home. Uh, and, uh, and that's the Christian life. And yet what God was seeking to do, as it were, in the land of Canaan was to give a foreshadowing of the way that it's going to be ultimately. You know, in heaven, there is not a mixture of different kinds of people. Uh, there's, there's only God's people, uh, saved completely by grace. You know, we're not saved because we're better than the Canaanites. The Israelites, as we'll see in the book of Judges, certainly were no better than the Canaanites. In fact, you see that immediately in chapter 1. Uh, Seems but, like that's one of the big points once we've come to the end of the book. Right. How deserving they are of the same judgment. Right. So, so one of the first things that the, the judge, that, that we see in Judges 1 uh, is when the Israelites capture Adoni Bezek, this Canaanite king who had made a habit of cutting off people's thumbs and big toes. Uh, they did the same thing to him. Uh, now, that's not a biblical punishment. Uh, they're, they're doing the same thing that the Canaanites do. And that's... You know, that, that's one of the dangers that God foresaw is that, you know, if, if you live in Canaan, you're going to end up behaving like the Canaanites. And surely they do. And surely they do. Well, you, you talked briefly about Shamgar. Let's talk about Deborah. Mm. We've got lots of modern conversations about the role of women in the church. Right. And so Deborah comes up. Why is this story of Deborah here? How is she being used? Right. Uh, how do we teach it appropriately? And then if you would also uh, address then how we deal with some of those questions that come up. Right. Yeah, so this is a classic example of how people parachute into a text, uh, rip it out of its context, and then make it say something that's the opposite of what it actually has to say. Um, Deborah is one of of a number of of really fine women in the Book of Judges. You know, the men are the problem in the Book of Judges, almost universally. Uh, The women are uh, almost universally so much better than the men. Um, and, and that's the situation that we have in, uh, in Judges 4. Uh, Deborah we, it has this leadership position in Israel, uh, and, uh, uh, and yet when God wants a deliverer, he sends Deborah to go tell somebody else to step up, be the man, and actually do what needs to be done. Uh, and and uh, he tells her to go to a man by the name of Barak. Uh, whose name means lightning, but who's late for just about everything that he's he's ever been asked to do, uh, and uh, so you know, so she tells him, go collect an army and go out out to war, uh, and uh, and his response is, uh, I- I'll go if you go with me, which is pretty embarrassing for a leader of God's people, but it's actually worse than that, because. Uh, that same phrase, I'll go if you go with me, has occurred before in the Old Testament. That's what Moses said to the Lord. I'll only go, you know, it, we'll only go and, and uh, you know, pursue Israel, you know, pursue the land of Canaan if you, Lord, go with us. Uh, there it was a good thing. I was going to say, that's a good right. thing, that's isn't a, it? Yeah, it's a good thing to say to the Lord, we'll go if you go with us. But maybe not to a woman? Yeah, not so, not so much. Or a person. Um, and, uh, and, and, the theme that's repeated throughout the chapter is uh, that the Lord, because of Israel's failure, because of Barak's failure, the Lord is going to hand his enemies over into the hand of a woman, which is sort of embarrassing for their enemies, but also embarrassing for Israel. They don't get any glory out of this uh, because uh, Israel's enemy is going to be handed over to a woman. Now, of course, we're all set up to expect it to be Deborah, 
right? Because she's the woman we've met in this leadership role. Um, but of course, the Lord is going to spring a surprise on us. Uh, and so, sure enough, uh, Deborah goes out with Barak, and uh, Barak goes out to war. Although, really, it's the Lord who wins the victory. Uh, and we see from, from uh, Judges 5 how he does that. Uh, he sends a, a, a torrential rainstorm, uh, which bogs down the chariots of, uh, of Sisera, of Israel's uh, enemy. Uh, in the Jezreel Valley, is, uh, it's an open plain. It's, it's good terrain for chariots. Uh, chariots were like tanks in antiquity, and so really hard for infantry to stand against them. But of course, if it rains enough and it becomes uh, muddy, then those chariots bog down and they're useless. And that's, that's how the Lord won the victory. It's also a psychological victory because the Canaanites thought, claimed that their god, Baal, was the god of storms uh, and thunder and lightning and rain. But it turned out that it was the Lord who was able to do that. Uh, and so then Sisera escapes and flees and goes uh, to the tents uh, of uh, uh, a jail uh, whose, uh, uh, whose husband is actually allied to Sisera's forces uh, and her husband's absent. We never find out where he is or what he thinks about this. Uh, and Jael welcomes him, him in and, and is sort of motherly towards him. You know, he asks for some water and she gives him some milk to drink. And, you know, she cuddles him down with a blanket. And, you know, this, you know, this warm glow, you know, it's almost like one of those TV commercials that, of, of this image of, of perfect motherhood. Uh, and then as soon as he, he's asleep, she pulls out a tent peg and a mallet and hammers it through his, through his skull. Um, and, uh, yeah, she's not, not a woman to be messed with. Mm. Um, and then after he's dead, that's when Barak shows up late again. Um, and, uh, so we see this downgrade in the judges, uh, that, uh, you know, progressing further. So is it appropriate to use anything as prescriptive from Deborah or JL in regard to women and our role in the church? Well, we don't tend to view jails taking a hammer and a tent peg <laughs> to solve, solve the problem of God's people as prescriptive for, for what women should do when the church is, is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, I think it helps, it, it does help us to understand that, that there are times when, uh, when issues are complex. Uh, you know, what, what do you do if you're in, in, in a church where, where the men are totally absent, either physically or spiritually? Um, and, I, and I think we can be sympathetic to, to, to women who find themselves in positions saying, look, I, you know, I, I don't think this is biblical, but somebody has to provide some kind of leadership here. So what am I going to do? Um, I think, you know, I think it, it, it enables us to be sympathetic to that. Um, and yet what Deborah does is not to take on that leadership role herself. She goes and finds Barak and summons Barak. And, and for all of Barak's faults, you know, she, she's, she's constantly trying to put Barak into that leadership position where he belongs. Uh, and I think that's the model, uh, that while there may be situations where for a while there's nobody else, that's not, that's not, God's, that's not God's design for his people. God's design for his people is that men should step forward and take leadership. Um, and again, often the, church, the problem in our churches is not necessarily the women. Often it's the men. The men have, have failed and been absent and not done their job, and so women have been pushed into positions that, that you know, that, that not necessarily through their own desire. Uh, and I think, yeah, the book of Judges shows us this, that's not the first time that's happened. We know that 
the whole of the Old Testament, Jesus said about it, that it is about him. Mm. And so as we're teaching through the book of Judges, mm. we we want to get the original setting and this all this original scene right, but we do want to keep asking it the question, right. in what way is this about Christ? Right. Um, and, you know, we've got all of these judges. They are stepping up, but they do all have faults. They they keep us wanting a better right. Savior to show up, don't they? Right. So, yeah, so, so we're often looking for this line uh, of, of parallels between heroes and Christ. And it's a little different in and, this book, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, and that's going to be really important when we get on to Samson uh, but, and Gideon as well. Uh, often the line from the judge is to us. You know, the judges are like Israel, and we're like Israel. Uh, and so, you know, so they do some good stuff here and there, but a lot of stuff they're not doing well, and it leaves them it in a mess. sounds like all of us. Exactly. And so, so these judges convict us of our sins, uh, and they show us ways in which we've fallen short, and that's what points us to Christ. Yeah. You know, we are sinners, and, and the passage exposes our hearts, shows us ways in which we say, ah, oh, well, I'm, I'm just like that. You know, I, I, I'm not ready to step forward and do what God tells me to do unless I have, you know, all of my pieces in place and, and I know how it's going to work out. And, and even then, I'm often late to the, the game. Uh, and I'm terrified that somehow God's plan's not going to work out because I don't step up and do my part. And one of the things the Book of Judges encourages us in is, no, God, God will still get his plan accomplished. Uh, and even through surprising and unusual ways. Um, but uh, ultimately... Our hope is not in, in us getting our act together. It's always looking away from ourselves and beyond us to Christ who has done these things perfectly. It seems to me the story of Deborah and Barak and eventually J.L. Though, does, does give us kind of a unique opportunity. And if we've been tracing the story of the Bible, especially from Genesis 3.15, mm. and we're told specifically we're giving this image of this offspring of the woman... Mm who's going to crush the head mm. <laughs> of the seed of the serpent. Right. I mean, you, you know, we see that throughout scriptures. And of course, you know, there's the big ones of David and Goliath right. and, uh, you know, Pharaoh being that seed of the serpent that raised, is, is raised up and is defeated. And uh, we'll see it later with Esther and Haman. Right. Is it appropriate to see it here with JL? Here is this woman who is a seed of the woman. She's part of God's chosen people. And she actually does exactly that. She yeah. crushes the head of this enemy, doesn't she? Nails she nails him. Oh. Um, and yeah, I think that's part of this conflict that's, that's going on. Absolutely. In the same way, and we'll see that with David and Goliath. You know, it, it, that's, it's the same, same thing happening there. Over and over again. Mm. All right. So uh, when you get, it's kind of unusual in chapter five. I wonder as a teacher, mm. if you handle this somewhat differently than the rest, because we're, we're hearing the stories, but chapter five is, if you just look at the text in the script, you right. realize this is different because it's song. Right. Is there a unique approach as we teach this to that part? Yeah. And again, you probably don't have time to do every chapter. So I'm going to tie this together with chapter four, uh, because it's the same events as chapter four. Uh, so what does it add? Well, it adds the shouting. You know, we say the, the game's not, not over until, until the, the shouting happens. Um, you know, every, every sporting event triumph, you know, the players do a lap of honor afterwards, the crowd goes wild. 
Um, chap- Judges 5 is where the crowd goes wild. It's, it's where, where the people sing in response to God's deliverance. Uh, and that's important because sometimes we can be kind of cerebral in our study of the scriptures. You know, we want to know names, dates, places, who did what to whom, how that fits theologically. But we, we're sort of analytical. Uh, and Judges 5 reminds us that there's a time to sing God's praise as well as to talk about it, uh, his deliverance. Um, well, let's move to the two judges that we both we all learned in Sunday school, right? Uh, which would be Gideon and Samson, right? But would you uniquely help us? I mean, most of us as teachers, sometimes we don't even realize that we're drawing upon some of those instinctual things that we learned as children. These approaches to these stories, and so we might even not recognize. Um, We've got some things in our wheelhouse about this story that we tend to pull out that maybe we need to get rid of. Right. So would you talk to us a little bit about how, let's begin with Gideon, how the story of Gideon is often taught wrongly, or maybe wrongly is too strong a word, perhaps it's just insufficiently. Yeah. Well, what we all remember about Gideon, or most of us remember about Gideon, if anything, is two things. Firstly, he laid out a fleece to find out what God wanted him to do. And then there was that whole thing with, with shouting and breaking jars uh, in the darkness. Uh, oh, the, the 300, you know, getting his 300 men, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, our, our trouble is we're looking at Gideon as a hero. And so we want to copy, we want to find things to copy in Gideon. Um, and uh, so, uh, so we view the fleece thing positively. And so we're thinking, okay, how can I lay out a fleet? I mean, and you, you, you hear people say this, you know, uh, young people looking for somebody to marry and I'm going to lay out a fleece. And, you know, the person who sits next to me in church, you know, the next two Sundays, that, that'd be them. And what that fails to see is that uh, Gideon's fleece really is a lack of faith. Um, Gideon really struggles with a lack of faith. Right from the start, the angel of the Lord comes to him. I mean, he's hiding in... Uh, in a, uh, a wine vat, essentially, uh, thrashing grain, which is a lousy place to do that because you need the wind to blow the, the, the chaff away. But he's doing that because he's terrified of the Amalekites, understandably. There's a lot of them. They have camels. Uh, and uh, the angel says to Gideon, God is with you, mighty man. And Gideon proceeds to challenge both of those. <laughs> and he says, you know, if God is with us, why is all this bad stuff happening? Uh, and, and secondly, I'm not a mighty man. I'm the, the least in my household. My household is the least, uh, in, 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 uh, in my tribe. And, you know, we're really insignificant. And of course, you know, as readers, as, as we do in life, typically when somebody says something, we, we take it at face value, uh, only to notice later on in the chapter that when he finally does do what the Lord told him to go do and goes and tears down the altar bail, he takes 10 household servants with him. Now, I don't know how many of our people listening have 10 household servants, uh, but I don't, and I don't know too many people who do. And the, in ancient Israel, you wouldn't have known too many people who would have 10 household servants. Uh, so Gideon, you know, m- really misrepresents himself there uh, and, and doesn't want to do what God, uh, God tells him to do. God tells him to engage in a fight, and when he builds the altar of the Lord, he names it the Lord is Peace which is not exactly what the Lord told him to do. Uh, so, so the Lord consistently has to push Gideon out to fight. 
uh, and he doesn't want to do that. And, and, and so the, the fleece, fleece says, because the first fleece is never enough, of course, in our experience, that works the same way as well. Uh, initially, he, you know, he wants uh, the, the fleece to be, uh, to be wet and the ground around it dry and then vice versa or whatever it is. Um, what we often miss is the fact that even after the second fleece, Gideon's not convinced. Uh, and so the Lord says, you know, if, uh, finally, after he's whittled down his army from 30,000 to 300, uh, and, and not the 300 elite, you know, this is not the, the 300 Spartans taking on the, the Greeks. Uh, this is, commentators aren't entirely clear about exactly what the test is, uh, but it, it seems to be a sort of a random test. Uh, and the main point is that there aren't many people who do this. And so, it, and if anything, it, this, is, this is the least competent. I mean, it, that, because the whole principle is, the Lord says, with 30,000 people, there's just too many people for me to get the glory. So we need to have a much, much smaller army. So it really would be completely wrong if it was the 300 best troops because you're probably pretty much as well off with the 300 best troops as the 30,000. Well, of course they right. were. Uh, it would make most sense if these are the 300 least competent troops. You know, the guys, you know, when you have a pickup basketball team, you know, there are some guys who are always the last people to get picked. Well, I was one of those. Um, so I would probably be one of his 300 because not competent. Um, and the Lord then says to Gideon, go down with your servant into the, uh, the Midianite camp and, 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 and listen to what they're saying. And so he goes down and he hears two Midianite soldiers talking to each other. And one says, I had a dream last night in which, which uh, this loaf of barley came barreling through, the ta- through our camp and knocked over the tent. Uh, and, and the other guy says, oh, that means that, you know, that Gideon is going to defeat us. That's not self-evident to me. I mean, there's some dreams in the Bible where you, you know, like in, in Joseph's dream where the sheaves They're bow down. down. That makes perfect sense. A rolling loaf of barley bread? No sense at all. Um, and yet Gideon is convinced. That's what convinces. You know, when God speaks to Gideon, doesn't convince him. When he has two fleeces, doesn't convince him. He hears one pagan telling another pagan his dream. Now he's ready to fight. So like us, isn't it? You know, it, it, so often it's not the things that ought to convince us to do the right thing that convince us. It, it's, it's crazy little things uh, that we get hung up on. You know, we're just like Gideon. Uh, and then Gideon goes and he rallies his troops and you're ready for this. Okay, so finally he's ready to fight. He's learned the lesson. Surely now he's going to get it right. No. He gives the troops the rallying cry. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So close. If you just stopped with the sword for the Lord, that would have been great. But no, this is about Gideon as well. Uh, and, and the next chapters where he continues his pursuit of the Midian, Midianite kings who fled, it's all about Gideon. Uh, and uh, and then, then when he comes home uh, and the people say, we want to make you king, he says, oh, no, no. I, I, far be it from me to be your king. But... I would like you to give me a king's share of the ransom. And by the way, meet my son Abimelech, whose name means in Hebrew, my father is king. And he then goes home and founds a cult, which is what kings do, uh, in his hometown of Ophrah, where he's, he makes uh, an ephod out of all these earrings from uh, the, the spoil, which is his share of the ransom, which then becomes a snare for Israel. So we started the story with an altar to Baal in Ophrah, 
we end the story with an ephod in Ophrah, but we, we haven't progressed. We're right back where we started, and Gideon's central to that. So why is this why is this in the Bible? And when you're teaching Gideon, what's going to be your main point or and and uh, invitation of response right. to people right. to this story? Yeah, he's so like us, you know. It, and again, it, this is so different from so many of the lessons that we teach and sermons that we preach. You know, we we try to inspire people to be people of great faith who live triumphant lives and who rarely stumble and just leap from triumph to triumph. Uh, and, and people are sitting there dying, thinking, this is crushing. I'm not like that. You know, have you seen my family? Have you seen my life? Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, you show them Gideon, and they say, finally, somebody in the Bible I can relate to. Somebody Some, who's as messed up as me. Somebody who's as messed up as me. Somebody who doesn't believe God when God says something. Somebody who, who says, Lord, I, yeah, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, somebody who's, who's perfectly capable of doing the right thing for a completely mixed motives. Wants to be treated like a king deacon Wants, in his heart. Oh, yeah. Don't we Even all? though he knows he shouldn't. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, just like us. Uh, and of course, you know, if, so if, if Gideon is all you've got, that's not good news. Right? I mean, it shows us our hearts, and it's not a pretty picture. But, of course, God's purpose for his people goes beyond that. Uh, and God is not surprised by Gideon. It's not like God, God's sitting in heaven thinking, this time, this time, right, surely, this time, he's, he's, he's going to do it, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. <laughs> and then, oh, no, got to find another one. And yeah, God is sovereign over all of that. And uh, he's, he's working his purposes out in the midst of the messiness of our lives, just as he did in the midst of the messiness of Israel's history. Well, let's move to Samson. Right. Which I think is so often um, used in teaching in a sense primarily about maybe some lessons about sexual purity. Um, is that one way it gets used wrong? Is it get used wrong some other, other ways? Well, in a sense, it's well, is that wrong? In a sense, that's not wrong. I mean, Samson has a problem, uh, and his problem is his eyes. So what Samson sees, Samson wants. Uh, in fact, the kindest thing anybody ever did for Samson was to take his eyes out, um, which is sobering to think about. Um, but uh, so yes, that that then leads Samson into sexual temptation. Um, he want he wants to instead of making war with the Philistines, which is what he's called to do, uh, before his birth, uh, the oracle given to his mother, interestingly, not to his father, given to his mother. His mother, his mother again, is another of these wise women in the book of Judges, and his father is a complete dolt who just doesn't know what he's on about, uh, to the point where, uh, in, in the vision where uh, the, the angel lord disappears, uh, Samson's father was running around like a headless chicken saying he's going to kill it, you know, we're going to be killed, we're going to be killed. And his mom, mom is saying, come on, if God had wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have had to go through this whole ritual. I mean, he could have just struck us down. But, you know, so, uh, but the oracle given to his mother is that Samson is going to begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. But Samson has no intention of delivering his people from the Philistines. He wants to get in bed with the Philistines. Uh, and, uh, and that's what you know, sets him on the downward road uh, to Timna, he's seen one of the Philistine women, and he wants the he wants his parents to to get him uh, for him. Uh, now, what's intriguing is that 
the narrator explicitly says his parents did not know that it, or literally she, was from the Lord, which is an intriguing thing to think about. You know, this is Samson's sin, Samson pursuing what he wants, and yet this is of the Lord. How is this of the Lord? Well, this is going to be the means by which the Lord accomplishes some of his purposes. Uh, The result of Samson's infatuation with this woman is that we're going to end up with a couple of hundred, you know, dead Philistines. Um, And uh, that's part of the Lord's purpose. Um, And so, yeah, we see the Lord able to be at work even through the messiness of our lives, even through our sin. You know, I I mean, I talk to people who, who come from really troubled backgrounds, really sinful backgrounds, and often they have a hard time thinking, well, you know, surely God cannot possibly have been in this or, or have any purpose for me. And, and judges is a great place to go and say, you know, God is at work even through these things. And he's going to bring things that are going to glorify him and, and even be good for you out of this. What deep, significant hope to offer people yeah. when we're teaching. Isn't that better than, here, try hard to be like this guy? Yeah. Who we're not like, you know, in any respects. So, uh, Samson does present us a picture uh, at the very end, doesn't he, of the person and work of Christ. We've talked about how there's not parallels, but there is that sense in which he, he is there and he, um, he accomplishes judgment and salvation, couldn't we well, say? Or what do you think? Uh, he, he sets some questions that, to which Jesus is the answer. I, I'd, I'd put it like that. Explain um, what you mean. I said earlier, all of the judges are like Israel, but none of them so much like Samson. Samson is called to be a Nazarite, to be set aside, apart to the Lord from before his birth, uh, and yet he has no intention of being holy. Uh, the bumper sticker on Samson's chariot reads, my body, my choice. Uh, he is convinced that he needs to have what he wants, and he has no respect for his calling to be holy. That's who Israel is. And the question is, wh- where does that end you up? Well, it ends him up uh, in bondage uh, and, uh, you know, with all of the marks of his separation taken away. Uh, and then in that situation, his hair starts to grow again uh, and, uh, uh, and, and his strength starts to return. And, and he's able to use that strength to bring the house down, to take out more Philistines in his death than he, he did in his life. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet, by Samson's stripes, we're not healed. Nobody is delivered. There's no rest for Israel as a result. You just get plummeted then into the civil war of yeah, 17 through 21. Um, is that going to be the end of Israel's story? Are they just going to end up in exile, in bondage, destroyed, accomplishing God's purposes, because we always do, but is that going to be the end of the story? Or is it possible that even through and after that, there can be a new hope, a new return. And that's where I think this, uh, this repeated theme, in those days there was no king in Israel. Well, what if we have a king? Maybe that can give us a different outcome, my judges. When you're teaching through the book of Judges, are you bringing that theme in almost every week, somehow trying to tie the judge you're talking about, the section you're talking about to this no king in Israel? Yeah, I mean, you need to do it carefully because okay. uh, the book of Judges is not completely pro-monarchic. And it's not completely in favor of having a king because, because you have a king, Abimelech. 
who declares himself king, and, and he's the worst of all. Uh, he creates a lot of chaos, and from the time of Abimelech, there is no there is no rest. That's the point at which you know the Israel having rest from the enemies ceases and disappears from the picture. So the writer of the Book of Judges knows that kings by themselves are not simply the answer. Um, we need we need a king, but not like any of the kings we end up getting. Um, and so the, it's a complex, uh, uh, you know, as the Old Testament so often is, there's a complex question being posed here. What kind of leadership do we need? Where do we find it? Who is this king? I mean, ultimately, it's not really a, even a Davidic king. Um, it's, it's the king. The ultimate Davidic the ultimate king. king. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in Old Testament terms, the Lord is that king. You know, that's who Israel is repeatedly turning their back on. Yeah, when we get later in the story, when they want Saul to be their king, the Lord right. is going to say, the problem is they have rejected me right. yeah. as their king. Yeah. We'll talk through this last section of the book right. of Judges, which, wow, I hardly know where to start. I mean, right. it's um, some of the ugliest pictures, and you can you can hardly believe this is happening in this land and amongst these people right. that were intended to be a treasured possession right. and a, a priesthood to the nations, a holy people. So right. what's happening in this chapter? So why is this here? Yeah. Yeah. This, this, you sort of have to cut this out of your precious moments, Bible. <laughs> oh, um, man. You know, it, 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 it's ugly and it's intended to be ugly. Uh, you have, I mean, you start out with the story of of, uh, of Micaiah, uh, the you know the and and his Levites who he hires. You know, it's buying and selling. You know, a, a religious professional. Such cor- um, right there, corruption right, of the temple. Right, and 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 in order to to you know to serve his idol that he makes out of stolen and cursed silver. Um, and then it gets stolen by somebody else and becomes a cult object for the uh, for entire tribe, and you think nobody's better off or worse. Yeah, it's just a disaster. Uh, and then we have the story of the Levite and his concubine, where he ends up uh, cutting his concubine in pieces and sending her body parts around the empire uh, in this after this reenactment of Sodom and Gomorrah within the boundaries of Israel itself, um, and and. The text doesn't actually tell us that she's dead before he cuts her up. I mean, um, you know, he is not a positive figure. Uh, but I think that's the value of it. Um, because, you know, I mean, as, as, as I speak to people and, and counsel people, there are people with very dark stories about things that have happened to them in church, not just in the world. You know, very painful stories of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse, uh, churches that have have uh, have turned ministry into a mockery, and and they they come and they say, "What is all this about? How is it possible these things happen?" Um, and and here's the chapters you turn to the Bible, you say, "This is not the first time it's happened." Uh, and, and that doesn't make any better. It's, it's still painful and, 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 and sad and terrible that these things have happened to you. Uh, but it's not like God fell asleep at that and doesn't know that these things happen. Um, God is still at work in his people. Uh, and, uh, you know, and this is who we are left to ourselves. 
You know, if if the spirit leaves us to ourselves, turns us over to ourselves, this is who we are. Um, you know, we think about sin in individual terms, but in corporate terms as churches, if the spirit leaves us to ourselves, this is how we end up with brokenness and infighting and bickering uh, and sexual abuse and physical abuse and, and, and spiritual abuse. This is why we need a savior. This is why we need a great savior who is actually willing to come and take into himself all of the pain and brokenness and the cost, the judgment that that deserves. That's why we need the cross. You know, if you have a precious moment's Bible, why do you need the cross? We're really not that bad. We just need a little polishing up. But when you look at the end of the book of Judges, you say, if somebody's going to pay for this level of sin, it is going to be costly. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be devastating. And that's exactly what we see at the cross. Well, why don't we close this way, if you would. Um, If you would speak directly to someone who's preparing to teach the book of Judges, um, concerned about how to teach it rightly, intimidated by some of the passages, really desiring to get to Christ and the gospel and the beautiful cross, as you just explained it, would you just speak directly to that person, offering a word of challenge, perhaps instruction and encouragement? Mm. Well, just remember that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, and especially as it points us forward to Christ. So as you engage in the study in the book of Judges, uh, keep looking for the ways in which this uh, book convicts us of our sins uh, and perhaps in that way points us to Christ by way of contrast, uh, by way of the ways in which Jesus is, is not like the human characters in this book, uh, but ultimately is the answer that we need because we so often are like the characters in this book uh, and uh, encourage people with the fact that God deals with the messiness of life and has dealt with it fully and finally at the cross. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books and tracts, including the Preaching the Word commentary series, in which Dr. Duguid has written the volume on numbers, which I found so very helpful to me. I've been writing on numbers over the last couple of weeks, actually, on a book I'm working on, and I keep opening it again and again. So thank you for that volume. Thank you for this conversation. You may also want to look at the volume on Judges in that commentary series. It's a volume on Judges and Ruth by Barry Webb. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.